The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So, this Advent, we have been journeying through Matthew's genealogy. And I know that we've been so excited about it. Um, But we've been journeying through Matthew's genealogy so that we may be formed by the world's true story, uh, so that we may be formed by the story of God's redemption, climaxing in God himself coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We've, we've acknowledged uh, that you and I are constantly given stories, daily given stories of who we are, And how we should live in this world. We are constantly given stories about where we're to find hope. Where we're to find love. Where to find joy. Where to find peace. We we don't even realize that we're being told these stories. And that they're shaping us. But they are. And so we, as the people of God, as the adopted sons and daughters of the King, need to hear God's story of redemption over and over and over and over again so that we can identify these wrong narratives that we're being told and that we can live lives of protest in the world around us. And this Advent, I don't know if you've noticed, but... We've not only been following the three groups of 14 generations in Matthew's genealogy, but we've also been following the themes of the Advent wreath. The themes of the Advent wreath. The first one, the first week of Advent, hope. Hope. And Jonathan asked the question, where is hope? And by looking at the first group of 14 generations, we saw that Although humanity has corrupted God's good creation, that God brings hope through a promise to Abraham that through his offspring, blessing or salvation would come to the nations. Hope from corruption. And in the second week of Advent, last week, the theme, love. I asked the the question that the great theologians, the black-eyed peas, asked. Where is the love? The love. The love. Where is the love? And by looking at the second group of 14 generations in Matthew's genealogy, we saw that, yes, God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham. And that Abraham's offspring, David, sits on the throne And we saw God pledge his steadfast love to David. That through the line of David would come a forever king. And a forever kingdom. A kingdom that would bring blessing to the nations. And although God pledged his faithful love to David, we saw David... David's and Israel's 
unfaithful love. Israel, Chase, is after idols, which leads to the division of the united monarchy under David and Solomon, and then ultimately into exile. It becomes clear that Israel's only hope is that God's love for them is based not in their action, but in who he is. But in who he is. And he is a God of steadfast love. And so we come to this week, the third week of Advent, the third group of 14 generations. Our theme, joy. Where is joy to be found? And in an attempt to bring some structure to my jumbled thoughts this morning, I want to walk us through four scenes. Four scenes. Scene one, Israel's joy being taken away. Israel's joy being taken away. Verse 11 in the genealogy from last week reveals that the people of God were defeated by the Babylonians. The promised line of David and the people of Israel are under foreign rule. They're in exile. And the prophet Jeremiah tells them that this isn't going to be quick. They'll be in exile for 70 years. In exile, like slavery in Egypt like the period of Judges, is a dark time for Israel. It's a period where many felt like God had abandoned His promises, that God had abandoned His people. Think about it. Israel has no king. Israel now has no kingdom. Israel has no temple. Has God abandoned His people? There was much despair. Uh, We see the despair and the oppression that Israel's enemies could bring in the Psalms. We see the despair of Israel's exile in the Psalms. Psalm 44. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. An example among the nations, a laughing stock. God, we're a joke. All day long, my disgrace is before me. Shame. Psalm 74. It's not going to get any cheerier. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. God, rescue us. We need rescue. Evil. Chaos. Hopelessness. Despair. All from oppression. You might be thinking, Brad, it's Advent. The tree's in the back. It's, it, it's almost Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Should we really be talking about such things 
Is that a, appropriate? Well, uh, Todd Billings is a theologian that has had a major impact on me. He's one of my theological heroes. And in 2012, at the age of 39, he was diagnosed with incurable cancer. About a year and a half later, he made this observation about the season of Advent and Christmas. He wrote this. I've noticed how pastors often have to remind us that Christmas is a time of sadness for some. For instance, those who have lost a loved one or are facing particular challenges that make the pressure to constantly be happy at Christmas quite difficult. Pastors are right to give us this reminder. Thanks, Todd. This is actually not just a pastoral add-on to a Christmas holiday, but it points to an uncomfortable and little-noticed reality. Recognition of the darkness of the fall and sin is inherent to the Christmas celebration itself. When the angels announced to the shepherds that to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord, this is not only cause for celebration, which it is, but it's also an offense, both then and now. Why? Who needs a Savior? Those who have tasted the darkness and need rescue. Those who have tasted the darkness and need rescue. Christmas is a celebration not of our goodwill, but of our Savior, because we need one. We're in the exile of the fall and sin, and we can't find our way home. We can't manufacture a solution on our own. Advent and Christmas should break through our illusions that we're okay on our own, that deep down we don't really need a Savior. We're in a mess. Yes, we do need a Savior, for we cannot save ourselves or the world. Advent is not a time for the church to run away from or ignore the darkness in our own lives or the darkness that we see in the world. No, it's a time for the church to stare it right in the face, to address it, to, to acknowledge it, and to profess anew. We desperately need rescue. We desperately need a Savior. I was listening to the radio, a Christian radio station, and they had an ad for themselves, and it said, music that's always uplifting and encouraging. And I thought to myself, who said Christian art is always supposed to be uplifting and encouraging? Certainly not the Psalms. John Calvin said that the Psalms, we see all our emotions in the Psalms. Joy, encouragement, yes. But despair, evil, wickedness, and our inability to overcome it, which puts us in a place of desperation, which puts us in a place where we acknowledge again 
We need rescue. We need a Savior. Is it possible that the inability for us to face the darkness of Christmas is because our idea of Advent and Christmas have been shaped more by the story of made-for-TV movies and American consumerism than the story of exile and our desperate need for rescue. Our song during Christmas is not, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear, until God does something. Exile showed Israel her need for God, and Advent does the same for us. Advent does the same for us. Now, through exile, although Israel's joy has been taken away, God brings joy to his people through prophetic hope. In exile, the people of Israel had great hope. They had prophetic hope from Isaiah and Hosea for a future messianic king from the line of David. They had prophetic hope from Ezekiel for a rebuilt temple because Solomon's was destroyed. A rebuilt temple where God's presence would dwell among his people again. Great hope. They had prophetic hope for God's kingdom to come all over the nation and and bring blessing to the world. We see prophecies like this in the book of Daniel. The question for the exiles is, when is God going to do something? When is he going to bring full joy? When is he going to rescue us? Scene two. Israel returns home with high hopes. Israel returns home with high hopes. Read Matthew 1, verse 12 with me. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. I've said Shealtiel probably about 55 times, and I got through it, thank God. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, a name we're all familiar with. Maybe not. But Matthew's audience would have been. Matthew's Jewish audience would have been aware of this name. Why? Well, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And in 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire that defeated Israel was defeated itself by the Persian Empire. And the Persian emperor Cyrus was kind to the Jewish people. He allowed them to return home to Jerusalem. He gave them military protection. He gave them supplies to rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel, the name Zerubbabel, means planted in Babylon. Planted in Babylon. And he represents a generation of Israelites in Babylonian captivity. And he leads the first wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem. You can imagine everyone's hopes 
and expectation. It, it's happening. The, the, the prophecies, they're, they're being fulfilled. Rescue. Maybe now God will finally fulfill his promises to Abraham, his promises to David, these promises that we've heard about every day. Maybe the messianic king will come. Blessing to the nations, rescue from corruption. The Israelites returned home with great hope and high expectations. It, it reminds me of a time in my own life when expectations were high. When I was in fifth grade, I had my first kiss. Yes, we're doing this. I'll never forget it. It was to Mallory Tarter at Kendall Turner's fifth grade birthday party during a game of truth or dare. <laughs> this is not an example to follow, all right? This is a confession. Yes, during a game of truth or dare, Mallory and I, standing across from each other, leaned in like this. And kissed. Well, it, it was a peck, really. I, I think most would hesitate to call it a peck. Mallory's response, with the entire class there to hear, that was it? My response, oh, crap. <laughs> I am never going to live this down. My hopes... What I had been waiting my entire childhood for, what Disney made look so appealing, were dashed on the rocks before me, with the world watching on, enjoying cake and ice cream. Summary, anticlimactic, unfulfilled hopes, incomplete joy. Which takes us to our next scene. Scene three, post-exile Israel. Specifically in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Incomplete joy, unfulfilled hopes. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the people were able to rebuild the temple. Now, to understand the scene that we're about to talk about, we need to remember the past stories of the tabernacle and the temple. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence would descend and dwell among his people. We talked about it last week with Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. This would be the image the people had in, in their minds. This is, this is what they were waiting for. And in Ezra 3, we see them lay the foundation for the temple. And the people, they praise God for his steadfast faithfulness and, and they rejoice. Well, not everyone. You know who doesn't rejoice? The old men. The old men weep. Why? They had such high hopes, they had such expectation. And the temple that was being laid was a joke compared to Solomon's temple that they had seen before. It, it, 
It was nothing compared to that glory. It's like Israel is moving backwards. Anti-climactic. Unfulfilled hopes. And then, later on in Ezra, we have the dedication of the temple, and the people wait for the fiery presence of God to come down, to descend, and to dwell among them. And what happens? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing happens. It's all so disappointing. (laughs) Okay, but, but what about all these great messianic hopes? What about Zerubbabel? He, he's, he's from the line of David. He, he, he rebuilt the temple. He, he led the people of Israel back from exile. Could he be the one that was prophesied about? No. Zerubbabel isn't really a king. He's the Persian-appointed governor. Israel doesn't even have their independence, and in his life he did not have the power to do anything about it. Such unfulfilled hopes, disappointing, incomplete joy. You see, Advent reminds us that just like post-exile Israel, we are a people that wait with unfulfilled hope. We wait for our Savior to come. Yes, Christ has come. The kingdom has come but we wait for him to come again. And until that time, we are a people that live with unfulfilled hope. Until we see Christ face to face, we are people that live in complete joy. We wait, Advent, the season of waiting. The season of waiting. And in scene three, a scene of unfulfilled hope, a scene of incomplete joy, the people of God have two temptations. The people of God have two temptations. Well, we have many temptations, right? But two temptations that I want us to reflect on this morning. The first is to seek full joy in created things. To seek full joy in created things. Read the book of Malachi. About a hundred years after Israel returns from exile, and what's the state? Has it gotten better? His exile transformed Israel's hearts? No. It's a mess. Idol worship, corrupt leadership, massive social injustice. The men of Israel are divorcing their wives of their youth flippantly, and they're going and they're marrying foreign women that worship idols. And then they themselves are worshiping idols. The whole thing is like an analogy that Israel is, has left God, the God that they made a covenant with, and they're practicing idolatry. They're seeking full joy in created things. They're trying to be the king and the lord of their own life. Their own life. 
Last year, I preached on the book of Ecclesiastes in the season of Advent. And there we saw and we reflected on Solomon's search for meaning. Solomon's quest for meaning. And we saw that he gives himself to, to knowledge. He gives himself to pleasure, success, and affirmation. And they all fail him. They all fail him. And the, and the takeaway from us is supposed to be, what is that thing that you desire most? What, what is that thing that you fantasize about? That thing that you think, if I can just get that, then finally I'll have peace. Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it a state in life? Is it a church? Is it a community of believers? What is that thing? Whatever that is, Solomon had it a hundredfold. And it failed him. Whatever it is you want, he had it a hundredfold. And it did not deliver. It did not give what it promised. Because it wasn't created to. In Solomon, what we see in Ecclesiastes is at the end of all these pursuits, he looks around and he says, is this all there is? Is, is this all there is for nothing has been able to bring me joy? Our second temptation. In this third seat, scene, the season of waiting is to believe that God's silence means God's absence. It's to believe that God's silence means God's absence. That when we don't see his work, and when, when it's not tangible, when we don't feel his presence, that he's not there. That he's not doing anything, or, or worse, maybe he's apathetic. The Old Testament ends, and it leaves us with an unfinished story. The Old Testament ends, and it's an unfinished story. At the end, the screen cuts to black, the credits roll, and everyone turns their neighbor and says, that's it? I hate that movie. Seriously, that's how it ends? So many unfulfilled promises. And then after the end... The Old Testament, the intertestament, uh, the intertest, the period between the testaments, <laughs> intertestamental period. Blah, thank you. The period between the testaments, four hundred years of silence. Right, we know this. So many unfulfilled promises. The next nine names in our genealogy. The next nine names they take us from post-exile Israel through the period between the Testaments. They lead us there. And you know who these people are? You don't. I don't. Nobody does. <laughs> we don't know who these people are. We don't know these next nine names. Now, that doesn't mean 
that Matthew just made them up. No. Uh, given the Jewish interest in genealogies, and in the family of David in particular, there is no doubt that tradition of throne succession would have been preserved. Uh, there are reports of Herod uh, trying to destroy genealogies, especially genealogies from the line of King David, because it threatened his rule. Genealogies were a big deal. We just don't have access to Matthew's source. But, but even though there's so much uncertainty, even though we don't know who these names are, these names can allow us to fight the temptation that says God doesn't care and isn't doing anything. Well, how? Why? Because in them we see that God is working out his purposes through ordinary individuals that history has forgotten. God sovereignly works out his purposes through people, through ordinary people, that history has forgotten. Just a friendly reminder this morning, you're going to die. I hope that's not news to anybody in here. He said, what? <laughs> you're going to die. And you and I will be forgotten in the pages of history unless our Lord and Savior returns. Forgotten. Your name, forgotten. Your accomplishments, forgotten. And that thought, I don't know about you, but for me, would be completely crushing if we didn't have a God who is concerned with the details of our lives. If we didn't have a God that was concerned with every moment. If we didn't have a God who was working everything, every ordinary detail that we forget about towards his end, towards his glorious purpose, which is what? Every knee bowed before Jesus. His glory and our good. Nothing that we do is in vain. Nothing is meaningless. Now, I don't know about you, but that brings me great joy this morning. That brings me great joy in this season of waiting, that I am a part of something bigger than myself. That I belong to a story where I am not the main character, and the outcome does not depend upon me. Great joy. Our final scene. I know you're all sitting on the edge of your chair. The coming of joy. Matthew 1, 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, we've been paying attention to when Matthew deviates from his X was the father of Y, was the father of, was the father of, was the father of, right formula. We're going to pay attention to those. And here's a big one. 
Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The husband of Mary, the husband of. That's the first time that we see this in this genealogy. The husband of Mary, why? Well, Matthew tells us two verses later. We know the story. When the mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. Not from Joseph. The virgin birth. Matthew is showing us how Jesus fulfills these promises, these long-awaited promises, these promises that we thought were going to come to fulfillment and then didn't. And then we thought they were going to come to fulfillment and then they didn't. And then we thought they were going to come to fulfillment and then they didn't. Matthew is showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. He is leaving no doubt in the reader's minds. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that a forever king will come through his line. Jesus, the son of David. And think about this with me. Joseph is in the kingly line of David. All right? Matthew's genealogy follows legal, not necessarily physical descent. You tracking with that? Legal, not necessarily physical descent. And here we see the transmission of legal heirship through Joseph. Jesus has a legal right to the throne of David. Jesus is in the line of David. The line that would bring a forever king on a forever throne. And Jesus is also the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah. What did Isaiah prophesy? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Before creation, he was with God and he was God. He is God's eternal fellow and he is God's own self. And as the eternal son of God and Israel's messianic king, he is the only one capable of rescuing us from our enemies and bringing eternal joy. Only the eternal God could bring eternal joy. Only God could bring rescue to his people. Only a God could bring joy to our hearts because our hearts were created for him. Not to be autonomous individuals on our own, free to make our own choices. No. Our hearts were created for Him. To live in obedience to Him. To know Him. To walk in His ways. To be bound to Him. That is what our hearts desire. Two things in closing that I want to draw us to. The advent of Christ shows that you and I desire far too little. 
The advent of Christ shows that you and I desire far too little. That was the idea of a guy named C.S. Lewis, who put it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The early church father, Augustine, put it this way, O God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Augustine believed that the problem was not that we have desires, but that our desires are not rightly ordered. When our first love and delight is in the triune God, we are able to enjoy rightly the beautiful things in this world. Friends, marriage, raising children, work, all of these things are gifts from God to be enjoyed, but these things will fail them if we give them our first love. If we look to them for full satisfaction, they will fail us, and in turn, we will end up destroying them. Stop looking to your spouse to be Jesus. Stop looking for your job to be Jesus. Stop looking at your family to be Jesus. Stop looking at your Christian community to be Jesus, for they cannot bear that weight. But, but Brad, how, how are we to overcome these desires that look so good to us, that, that we, we love. How can I change what I love and seem as most desirable for, for me? Well, in 1826, a pastor and theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmer gave a sermon titled, The Expulsive power of a new affection. That's a good sermon title. Makes me a little self-conscious about my own. The expulsive power of a new affection. He explained that naturally our lives are controlled by desire, by a love for the world. So what are we to do? Try to convince ourselves that the world isn't so alluring after all? He says no but in a much better and stronger way than I ever could. He says this, No, nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection. That is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. Ineffective. Nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection, but by the expulsive power of a new one. And so the second thing that I want to say to close is that this morning, 
I'm not going to say try harder. I'm not going to say do better. I'm not going to say stop being so selfish. Put others first. Serve at shades more. Be patient with people. Bear with one another. Stop chasing these worldly desires. I'm not going to say that. I just want to ask you one thing. I want to ask you this morning to find your joy and delight in Jesus Christ. I want you to delight in him. I want you to stare at him. I want you to set your affections on him, who he is and what he has done for you. I want us to think deeply about Jesus because when that happens, the love that we have for ourselves, the love that we have for the things in the world that seem to overpower our love for God, that will be reshaped. That will be changed. Our affections will be different. And we will have what Tim Keller calls the joy of self-forgetfulness. The joy of self-forgetfulness. That is a joy that is rooted in Jesus Christ. So church, this morning, whether you stand up or sit down, whether you feel depressed or happy, whether God seems near or far, whether it is a season of loss or gain, whether you are lonely or blessed by community, whether it is through tears or laughter in silence or in song, I say rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come. God with us. Jesus Christ. He has come and he is coming again. Delight in him, which is our end now and for eternity. Joy in the triune God. Amen.